It's very natural for people today to see spiritual ministry as something that the pastor or that the elders and the deacons do. After all, they're the professionals. Some of them even get paid. Their job is to do ministry. Now, of course, we know there are some tasks, like teaching and preaching, that are primarily done by elders. And through your generous compensation, you have freed up myself, you've freed up Dan to focus our time and attention on ministry to an even greater degree than it's even possible with John and Eric and Rocky. Perhaps one of the main problems with this thinking that ministry is what pastors or elders do is that our definition of ministry is a bit too narrow. So, so I think it'd be good for us to broaden it a bit, to stretch the definition and make it a little bigger. So how about this? The definition of ministry, I heard from Kevin DeYoung, which I think is helpful. It gives us a better picture of what ministry truly is. Ministry is essentially whatever you do, explicitly or implicitly, so Christ is formed in others. All right, I'll read it again. Ministry is essentially whatever you do, explicitly or implicitly, so Christ is formed in others. And every Christian is called to this. Every Christian is called into ministry And the primary platform that God has ordained for ministry to be expressed is the local church. Members of Eden Baptist Church, you are the ministers of this church. We see this all through the New Testament. This evening, we will read our church covenant where we see a description of ministry that every Christian is commanded to be part of. Ministry that Dorothy and Rich and Rachel will commit to participate in as they join with us tonight, Lord willing. So as we consider our corporate calling to do ministry together as Eden Baptist Church, it's important that we continually remind ourselves of the fundamental truths of God's Word that describe how we should view and how we should practice ministry. Why do we do ministry? How should we do ministry? What should the goal, the basis, the motivation for our ministry be? To answer these questions, we've got to look to God's Word. This is where we must find the answer. And Paul talks about this very thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I invite you to open your Bibles there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in the first six verses, we see a description of the fruit of authentic ministry, what it looks like. We see a description of the root of authentic ministry, what causes it to happen. And we see a description of the sufficiency for authentic ministry, where it is that we get the source and the power for it. So first we'll consider the fruit of authentic ministry. And the fruit of authentic ministry we see here in this passage is changed lives. The fruit of authentic ministry is changed lives. 
All throughout this letter, all throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul's defending himself. He had just told them in chapter 2 and verse 17, right before our passage, he just told them that unlike the super apostles who they had come to follow, he was sincere. He was commissioned by God. He was speaking Christ before them. And so picking up in verse 1 of chapter 3, are we, and and the we here and the us, the plural pronouns in this passage, just so you know, Paul's talking about himself, but, but it's an apostolic we. So he's representing the apostolic office. So that, that's what's happening with the we and the us. So he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Paul had been with the Corinthians for two and a half years. So they knew him. He knew them. But his relationship had deteriorated with them And in a somewhat regretful tone here, he asked them, Has our relationship sunk to such a low that I must now call upon outside parties to vouch for me? In the ancient world, letters of recommendation were an important tool for an itinerant speaker. A guy you heard of was wanting to come to town or shows up in town. You could not just go check him out on Facebook. Right? You couldn't go to his website and maybe download some lectures to figure out who this guy was. No, you couldn't do that. So if you wanted to speak to a group of people that you did not know, it was important that there be a third party, somebody who knew you and the group you wanted to speak to, to give you a reference, to vouch for you that you were indeed the real deal. Well, apparently false prophets carried letters like these with them that recommended their ministry. Paul's not opposed to these letters. He's not opposed to letters of recommendation at all. They were an essential part of initiating and fostering relationships in the ancient world. Paul even wrote letters of recommendation himself. He commended Timothy. He commended Titus. And my personal favorite is found in Romans 16, 1 and 2 where Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencrea, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. So you're asking for a letter of recommendation? Paul goes on in verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So in the words of Mool, Paul's credentials are not on paper, but in persons. Paul said he did not need letters of recommendation for the Corinthians or from the Corinthians because his letters were the Corinthians. You yourselves are our letter. The conversion of the Corinthians was the strongest commendation for his ministry imaginable. What other proof could they possibly seek that he was legitimate? It's as if he's saying, I don't have a letter in my pocket because it's written on my heart. 
in the title of the letter, the church at Corinth. And I don't have to take it out to show people because anybody can come and look at you. I led you to the Lord. I discipled you. I started your church. If you want to doubt, doubt my apostleship, then you have to doubt your own conversion because it happened through my ministry. If you question the legitimacy of my apostleship, you are questioning the legitimacy of your salvation. So the Corinthians are living letters that testify to the validity of Paul's apostleship. These letters, the text says, are from Christ, literally of Christ, Christ formed in them. The letters delivered by us or ministered by us, Christ in the Corinthians through the ministry of Paul. And these letters are written not with ink, but with the Spirit of God. So God has done this. God has written these letters. It's far more important to Paul that the Spirit of God has worked through him than he produced some piece of paper. Now what Paul's referring to here at the end of verse 3 is the prophecy of the new covenant from Ezekiel and Jeremiah, which we read earlier. The law had been written on tablets of stone, but it would now be written on human hearts. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. But Paul is saying that through his ministry to the Corinthians, God was fulfilling this ancient prophecy. And what more proof did they need that he was the real deal? So here, in these first three verses, we see the fruit of authentic ministry. The fruit of authentic ministry is changed lives. And this is what we must strive for. This is the goal. This is the fruit that comes from true, authentic Christian ministry. Now, how people respond to our ministry is ultimately up to God. He's the one who changes the hearts. But we're called to minister to individual people so that Christ may be formed in them. It's a good place for some self-assessment. Is our ministry as a church fruitful? Are people's lives being changed because of Eden Baptist Church? I think the answer is yes. I think they are. I, I'd be the first to say yes because mine is. My family's life is being formed more and more into Christ because of the ministry of this church. I trust yours is too. I trust you could say that as well. And I hope we're all aware and we see examples of how God is changing people through the ministry of our church. Our church is made up of individual members. So I think it'll be beneficial to zoom in a little bit and get a little bit more personal. Is your life fruitful? Your life fruitful? Are people's lives being changed because of you? Just coming to church every now and then, or even every week for that matter, does not make you fruitful as a Christian. 
in fact, it's really hard. It's not really that hard to be unfruitful at all. They just show up every now and then and don't do anything. That's all it takes to be unfruitful. If you slip in just before the service starts and slip out as soon as it's over, hoping to not have to talk to anybody, if you're not serving, not giving, if you're not impacting anyone, if you're not in anyone's life, then chances are you are unfruitful. You see, it doesn't really matter how smart we are. It doesn't matter that we think a lot and have a really good handle on theology and God's Word. It doesn't really matter how devoted we are to personal Bible study and quiet time. It doesn't matter if you attended Bible college or have some form of formal Bible training. It doesn't even matter that you're really nice and that people like you and you don't really ever make any waves. All the ways you used to serve and be involved in the life of the church, it's really irrelevant. The issue isn't ultimately, okay, the issue isn't ultimately what are you doing and how are you doing it. The issue here is who, right? The issue here is who. Who are the people you can point to and say, those are my letters. Those are my letters. Those are the people that I am seeking to impact for Christ. Is anyone being changed because of your life? We see here, first of all, that the fruit of authentic ministry is changed lives. The fruit of authentic ministry is changed lives. Second, we see the root of authentic ministry. So, so what is it that's causing the fruit to happen? What's underneath the fruit? Well, the root of authentic ministry is the Spirit of God. The root of authentic ministry is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God here, as the root of authentic ministry, does two things in this text. The Spirit of God gives a new heart, and the Spirit of God gives new life. First, the Spirit gives a new heart. We see that at the end of verse 3, where he talks about the tablets of the human heart. And, and this is a reference, as I've mentioned already, to the new covenant prophecies in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where God promises to give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The contrast between a stone tablet here and a heart tablet, it points to the imagery we see in Mount Sinai. Exodus 31.8 says that the very finger of God wrote the law on stone tablets. But here... He's writing on human hearts. Paul is in no way denigrating the Old Testament or the law at all when he contrasts here the Old and the New Covenants. Rather, what he's seeking to do is to lift up 
and to elevate the new covenant. I enjoyed reading and thinking about this, old covenant, new covenant, and there's a lot to it. There's a depth there and a beauty there, and I'm certainly not going to fully exhaust or explain what's happening. I was really helped by Jason Meyer's work called The End of the Law, and I I pull from that, I borrow from that, as I seek to explain this to you all. But as we think about what's happening here, both covenants, old and new, involve inscription. Inscription is writing. God's act of inscription is an intervention, but he intervenes in different ways. So the old covenant inscription is an external, an outside intervention. But the new covenant inscription is an internal intervention. Whereas the place of God's inscribing action focus on stone tablets in the Old Covenant, external, the object of inscription shifts in the New Covenant to flesh heart tablets, internal. God granted a great gift to Israel when He intervened in human history and provided a written expression of His will, when He gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. However, this gracious gift remained to Israel outside. It was external because they never internalized it. In fact, they couldn't internalize it. So God grants a greater gift under the new covenant because in the new covenant, God provides an internal intervention. God's will becomes internalized in the new covenant because he overcomes the resistance to his law that comes from within. Meyer said it so well in a helpful way. The old covenant work of inscription produces prescription. Prescription focuses on what man must do. But the new covenant work of inscription produces not prescription, but creation. And creation focuses on what God has already done. So at the root of authentic ministry, we see the Spirit of God giving a new heart, and as He performs this heart replacement surgery, He gives spiritual life. So There's heart replacement surgery, new heart, and as a result, the Spirit gives new life. We see this there at the end of verse 6. The end of verse 6 is he's, he's talking about being competent for the ministry. Well, we'll look at that in a minute. A minister of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What's this phrase mean? It's a significant phrase in the Bible, a significant phrase in this text. A couple things first that it does not mean. Right? It does not, it's not, Paul here is not putting law versus license. People who have rules, they're the letter. No rules, the Spirit. That's not what Paul's saying. This is not to be used as a legitimate proof text for how we interpret the Bible. So, a literal reading of Scripture, letter more of an allegorical reading of Scripture, spirit, 
A lot of the church fathers thought that's what this meant. It has to do with how we read Scripture. A literal reading, letter bad. More of an allegorical spirit reading, that's what gives life. That's not what Paul is saying. Have you ever heard the idea that the spirit of the law is more important than the letter? Right? Okay, we've heard that. We should stress the spirit, not the letter. There's a good example of this very view being used today um, from an article written by Luke Timothy Johnson, who's a Roman Catholic scholar. And, and in the article, he, he, he talks about how Scripture clearly teaches homosexuality is wrong. But he goes on in the article, and in, at the end of the day, in this article, he is arguing for the full support, the full recognition of gay and lesbian persons within the Christian communion. Okay, So, he, he, he's acknowledging what Scripture says, but this is what he says. He says, We are fully aware that the weight of biblical evidence pointing away from our position, yet we place our trust in the power of the living God to reveal as powerfully through personal experience and testimony as through written text. To justify this thrust, here's where he goes. We invoke the basic Pauline principle that the Spirit gives life, but the letter kills. And if the letter of Scripture cannot find room for the activity of the living God and the transformation of human lives, then trust and obedience must be paid to the living God rather than the words of Scripture. Do you see how this is being used? It's a subtle argument, but it pops up all the time. We see it all the time. Texts of Scripture, boo, bad, boring. Spirit, personal experience, testimony, yes, that's what gives life. That's where it's at. This verse does not signify two different ways of reading the Scriptures with the individual or even with the church determining the spiritual meaning of the text based upon their own experience or their own testimony. Whatever feels right to them. It's not what this means. So, what then does Paul mean here when he says the letter kills but the Spirit gives life? Well, the context will help us. And we need to look to the context, and we see the key to what this phrase means in verse 3. At the end of verse 3, where Paul's talking about writing on stone versus writing on hearts. So Paul was not concerned with two distinct messages. Paul is concerned with two different materials on which God wrote. And these two materials, stone and heart, corresponded to the two basic ages within the history of salvation. See, the problem with the Sinai Covenant was not with the law itself. The law was not bad. There was nothing bad about the law. In fact, Paul says so himself. Romans 7.14 says the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But as Ezekiel and Jeremiah testify, the problem 
not with the law. The problem is with the people whose hearts remain hardened under the law. Meyer's words are helpful again. The law does not kill because it's bad, but precisely the opposite. It kills because it is a good thing that brings death when people are bad. The law is not bad. It's just too weak to change bad people. It cannot create what it calls for. It cannot conquer the evil power of the flesh. The problem is not that the law is written. The problem that it is only written. And since it is powerless to transform the hearers, it can only stand as a witness to their condemnation. So it's not the law per se that kills, but it's the law without the Spirit. And although the law declares God's will, it has absolutely no power to make people keep it. The 18th century hymnist John Bridge summarized this really well. He says, Run, John, run, and work, the law commands. Yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. So the law without the Spirit remains a lifeless letter. But... But the Spirit gives life by changing the human heart. And that is the miracle of the new covenant. So I wonder this morning, I wonder if you realize how desperately you need this new heart. I wonder if you realize how desperately you need the new life from God's Spirit. You know, there's many people today who think of themselves sort of like a house. Sort of like a house that's, that's not in perfect shape, but it's pretty good, and, and it's livable. Sure, you can always find things wrong with it. Just, yeah, there's, there's problems. It could use some TLC, but it can be restored, and we're going to work on it, and we'll take our time and get it all fixed up. Is that how you view your life? Is that sort of how you see yourself? Well, if so, if so, you are wrong. You're dead wrong. Can you sense in your heart your utter inability to keep God's law? Just take the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. How have you done with that one? Have you ever lived your life, have you lived your life without ever putting your job, a hobby, a desired career path, a relationship, or a desire for a relationship? Have you ever lived your life without putting yourself or any of these other things ahead of God? We could look at the other nine. And if we did, it would become apparent that all of us have broken all of those too. In spite of our greatest effort and strongest desire to obey God's law, we can't do it. 
in our natural state, we are like a building that is so ruined by sin that the city of Burnsville puts a sign over the door. Condemned. In fact, it's worse than that. The building's on fire. It cannot be salvaged. It cannot be restored. It's got to be torn down and something new has got to be built in its place. We all face death because of our failure to obey God's law. We all need a new heart so we can obey God's law. We all need the life, new life from the Spirit of God. The fact that the law can only kill sinners and not change them, this shows us that we need a Savior. And the law, if it's not apparently obvious by now, the law is not our Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. This is exactly what Romans 8.3 says. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. So as hard as you may try, you can't obey God's law. But there is one who has. Jesus Christ kept God's law perfectly. And though we deserve death for our failure to keep God's law, Jesus absorbed God's wrath for our sin on the cross. And the good news is that if you will repent of your sin, if you'll repent of your failure to obey God's law, and if you'll trust in the one who has kept it perfectly, Jesus Christ, who died in your place, you will be given a new heart. And you will be given the new life through God's Spirit. So if you're here this morning and you don't have a new heart, you have never experienced this life from God's Spirit, I urge you to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So the fruit of authentic ministry is changed lives. The root of that, that which causes it to happen, is the Spirit who gives a new heart and new life. And finally this morning, the sufficiency for authentic ministry is God. The sufficiency for authentic ministry is God. All of us who've received this new heart and life from the Spirit are ministers of the new covenant. We're not all apostles like Paul, but we are all called to this very same ministry. And since the root that produces the fruit of this ministry is God's Spirit, then we must find our sufficiency for ministry there, in God, rather than in ourselves. In chapter 2, in verse 16, as Paul's talking about his ministry with the Corinthians, in chapter 2, in this verse 16, he asks a question which was begged to be asked. Who is sufficient for these things? He answers the question in our text, starting with verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant. Not the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
So Paul's confident in his ministry is through Christ, toward God, because of the Spirit's work of giving new hearts and new life. His sufficiency is in God. It's not in himself. I think if I were to ask you, do you desire God to be glorified in your ministry? I'm sure you would say yes, right? We all do. We as a church and as individuals desire for God to be glorified in our ministry. And if that's going to happen, in order for that to happen, we have to really grasp what Paul is saying here. Because it is really hard. It's hard for me, and perhaps you would agree, that it's hard to not look at ourselves when we seek to minister. You find that hard? I do. We naturally look to ourselves for our sufficiency. The fact that this happens, and so easily happens, I think shows itself in two primary ways. Shows itself in pride, and it shows itself in pity. The two may seem to be opposites, right? They may seem on the surface to look really different. But both of them result from the same thing. Both of them result from looking to ourselves rather than to God for our sufficiency. We're familiar with pride, right? Oh yeah, I can do that. I'm really good at that. And I can certainly make that better, make that... Yes, I'm really good. I'll do it. Perhaps we even seek out the ministry opportunities that we think will make us look good. We may do that in our pride. And as we minister, we look within ourselves for the ability and strength for the task. And when others recognize our work, we either silently or not so silently pat ourselves on the back for a job well done. And in our pride, we forget that when we do things for God, He's the one doing them. So we find our sufficiency in ourselves. We deny that God is the one working through us. And who gets the glory in that? Okay, we do. God's not glorified. We're also quite familiar with pride's kissing cousin, pity. We can be pretty good at highlighting how lousy we are at everything, right? Oh, I couldn't read that book. Oh, I I would never be able to lead a Bible study. I I can't talk in front of people. I, I couldn't share a testimony. Certainly not give a challenge or preach. I don't think I would be good to help with that project. Teach that class. I could never serve. We could go on and on, right? Now, there are certainly, there are certainly ministry opportunities that you should not pursue. And there are no doubt requests that people come to you with that you ought to turn down, all right? That's certainly the case. But we can so easily shy away from something we should do because we're looking to ourselves rather than God. 
And when we put the focus on ourselves, we can easily become overwhelmed with a sense of insufficiency and incompetence. And in that process, we are seeking to find our sufficiency in ourselves and we're acting like God can't do anything through us. So even though it looks a little different, pity robs God of His glory in the exact same way that pride does by denying that God is the one at work through us. In 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, Peter says that we've all received various gifts. And he goes on and says that God is glorified in our ministry as we serve by the strength that He provides. That's how God is glorified. So may God keep us from stealing the glory He deserves through pride and through the pity that flows from looking to ourselves rather than to God for sufficiency in ministry. Just one further application here as we think about this point to consider together. Do you remember the broad definition for ministry that I shared at the beginning of the sermon? Ministry is essentially whatever you do, explicitly or implicitly, so Christ is formed in others. Whatever you do that helps contribute to Christ being formed in others. We've all been given different gifts, but all of us are ministers of this church. And as we consider this calling, we should find great encouragement in this truth that our sufficiency for ministry comes from God. It doesn't come from ourselves. As one author said so well, you don't need to do big things for God to use you. You do small things and trust that God will show up and do big things. So, can you put together a simple meal for a family in need? Can you invite a neighbor or coworker over to your home seeking to show them a glimpse of the way God has loved you? Can you come tonight to Unite and help out in some way and greet with a smile our neighbors who come? Can you run a lawnmower, shovel snow for the church? Can you introduce yourself to a visitor at church? Can you introduce yourself on a Wednesday night to a teenager who's there that you don't know? On that point, teenager, can you invite an unsafe friend or coworker to a Wednesday night youth meeting in the fall? Can you ask someone to meet up every week or every two weeks just to read the Bible and pray together? Can you come to church early or stay a few minutes late simply to talk to people about what God is doing in your life and to hear from them about what God is doing in theirs? Can you help pass out flyers for VBS? 
So you don't need to do big things for God to use you. You do small things and trust that God will show up and do big things. The story is told of a five-year-old boy who loved to play the piano. And any time he got the chance, he would sit down and fiddle around with the keys. He never had lessons, never had any formal training. He was always told he was too small, he was too young to play the piano. But in spite of the resistance, he continued to practice when he could. And the only song he knew, the only song he learned was Chopsticks. Ever heard Chopsticks? It's a pretty basic song, right? You could play Chopsticks. Well, one day, the boy's father surprised him with tickets to go to the symphony and hear a world-renowned Italian pianist, one of the best in the world. The night of the concert arrived, and as they walked to their seats, the little boy saw the beautiful grand piano on stage behind the curtain. He found a moment when no one was looking, and he snuck over and sat down on the piano bench, and he began to play his elementary version of Chopsticks. Well, just about that time, the curtain came up. It began to rise, and the audience was prepared to see this world-renowned, famous master pianist. But instead, they saw a little boy hunched over the keys playing Chopsticks. The boy was oblivious. He was so caught up in this world, he didn't even know what was happening. The curtain was up. He didn't know all the eyes were on him. But when he did, when he suddenly realized what was happening, he was scared to death. Just about as he was ready to get up and run for his life, two big arms reached around him and placed big hands on the keys. It was the master pianist. And he whispered in the little boy's ear, keep playing, keep playing. Well, as the little boy continued to play his simple rendition of Chopsticks, this world-renowned pianist began to play a Beethoven symphony piece that was scored in the same key, in the same cadence. And under the direction of the master, the rest, the entire rest of the orchestra came in First he brought in the woodwinds, then the brass, then the percussion. The boy's father sat there with tears coming down his cheeks. He couldn't believe what he was experiencing. He never dreamed that simple tune he heard in his living room each day would become a beautifully orchestrated Beethoven symphony. This is an illustration of what God does with our insufficiency. Well, he doesn't take it away. He doesn't remove it. But he works through it. And his strength is shown. And he gets the glory. So don't wait until you feel like you're a piano expert. We play the music of this glorious new covenant ministry as well as we can. But our efforts are only like the plunk, plunk, plunk of chopsticks. Let's plunk away with this glorious message of the new heart and new life in Christ. And let's pray that the Spirit 
as the master music teacher will come and make the music come to life in a way that we never could. If you've received the blessing of the new covenant, you are called to be a minister of the life-giving Spirit of God. The fruit of our ministry is changed lives. The root or the power that causes that to happen is the Spirit of God. And the sufficiency for our ministry is God Himself. Father, thank you so much for a new heart. Thank you for granting to us new life from your Spirit. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that still has a heart of stone, that cannot find the ability to obey your laws, Father, please, through your Spirit, give them a new heart. Breathe life into their spirit, we pray. Do this, we ask, for your glory. Father, as we respond to the work of your spirit as a church and as individuals, Father, help us to pursue people. Help us to desire to see in others what you've done and what you're doing in us. Father, be pleased to change lives through us, we pray. And as we do that, God, help us to find our sufficiency in you. Spare us from the pride, which so easily happens when we look to ourselves. Spare us from the pity, which looks to ourselves. And may you be glorified in our church as we serve together. And may you be glorified in our individual lives as we engage in ministry. Father, we pray you do this all to make much of yourself and to give us joy. It's in Christ we ask all these things. Amen.